This is the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. It will be covering a walk from the geographic centre of Australia to the centre of the nation's capital in Canberra to raise awareness of the mental health issues faced by our first responders. We ask a lot of the people in our police, emergency services and all frontline workers. That takes a big toll on them and their families, which is why this walk is happening. These are just everyday people that have to do extraordinary things. These people are just like my dad. Welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. Today's episode, we have a guest that's able to speak with some authority on a number of issues that actually are really relevant to a lot of people on the walk and a lot of people that are listening to uh, or know people on the walk, I guess, and and understand what's going on in their world. But today we have Dr. Dan Pronk, former special operations doctor, author and TV personality. G'day, Dan. G'day, Matt. Cheers for having me, mate. Oh, thanks so much. Now, so I've I've been following you for a, quite a while, both through the podcast Unforgiving Sixty with your brother and Tim Curtis, and the book Resilient Shield was recommended to me by some people that I really rate uh, from my former emergency services life, and I uh, because of what they how they pushed it, I, I took it on board, got it, and listened to it, and you know it's it's a fantastic book to explain the complex worlds that we've lived in and are living in and some of the some of the things that come up during that time but just recently I did notice that you'd started a Friday first responder newsletter and and a couple of those articles that were in there just absolutely were on point with things that were current in my own life and and my own you know post service and PTSD recovery um, journey that I'm on and I just thought I'd reach out and see if you could explain some of them in a bit more detail because I know the people that I, I'm associating with these days, it's it's part of their world as well. And there were two that really jumped out at me. One of them was about the identity fusion issues that all sort of uniform service and a lot of other professions, no doubt, face on their way out of a, uh, out of a career that's got a lot of identity associated with that career. And also the the explanation you gave to maladaptive co-rumination, when I read that, I went, wow, that explains so much about the environments that I've come from and the, and the cultures of that practice in them, uh, both as an individual and in groups. So before we get too far into it, I just thought, uh, or before we get to talking about identity fusion issues and, and some of those complexities of leaving service, I just thought we might quickly talk about issues leading up to leaving service and some of those, I, I guess they're called uh, triggers or, or catalysts for exiting those careers. And I know recently I listened to one of the podcasts where you talk about strained brains and everybody knowing how to treat a sprained ankle, but no one really knows what to do with a strained brain. So could you give us a bit of a rundown on that issue and and that sort of analogy, I guess, about these high-pressure roles that people are exposed to lots of trauma in? Yeah, for sure. I think it's something that's not done well. And I don't think that is always that we're we're consciously dismissive of the the stress of the role or or we're consciously ignoring or diminishing the the maybe the early signs of some cumulative stress or some some requirement to process traumatic events i think a lot of this is in, it's inherent to the cultures of the organizations but also often inherent to the personalities and the 
uh, identities of the people that that move into first responder organizations so it's a it's a it's a multifactorial beast i believe as to how people can end up in a, a bit of a state of poor mental health after periods of time and exposures in military or first response organizations but when you pair it right back to the beginning of one of these careers often people will be going in because they are driven in that direction either they're inclined towards the military or police or first response and we know there's certain personality profiles that seek this out and often it is a desire to to serve it's a craving for an excitement for a validation to build some skills to be used in a in what that individual perceives as a uh, maybe a high consequence but a meaningful occupation and certainly that was my drive in when I became aware of of army and then and then specifically army special operations through my brother I looking ahead at that aspiration I saw this opportunity for me personally to to build a skill set and then potentially employ it in a in a really uh, stimulating environment where the, the consequences were life or death and that's where a lot of our military and first responders find themselves periodically in those high stress high consequence environments and at the start of your career when you're moving into that and you're undergoing your training and you're growing and and you you you're forming your identity as a a first responder a police officer an ambulance officer a fiery a military member it's often really positive and it's really fulfilling and you get this sense of purpose and identity and slowly but surely your identity starts to move towards being that of the role and so and that's normal we should identify as our work role it can become problematic if we only identify as our work role and we talk mm. about in uh, resilient shield and in some of the blog stuff we talk about this this almost a trap this insidious psychological thing that happens where you can undergo what's called identity role fusion where you in effect identify as your role and certainly I've, I've blogged about this a lot we talk about it in Red Shield that that was me holus bolus when I was a doctor with the army and particularly with units like two commando and SASR I saw myself as as that my identity was a doctor with special operations and and while that's going well that's good you've got a positive identity you've got self-esteem uh, but it's what's called contingent self-esteem in that setting which means means that mm. your self-esteem is contingent on you doing well in your work role. And so it's all very positive, but it's all very underpinned by you being in that organisation and you performing well in that organisation. And it's it's a, a trap you can fall into or a couple of traps you can fall into and 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 it's in a, in a way it's it is necessary I think in in these roles to be good at them uh, to somewhat uh, fall into that that identity role fusion but I think even just a basic awareness of it and the fact that you're doing it and, and making a deliberate attempt to have a something more to your identity than just your work role is is critically mm. important staying engaged with groups outside of policing ambulance officers you know correctional officers military personnel whatever that may be but but what tends to happen is as you start to uh, identify as that role and start to spend more and more time in those groups, it's there's a, a concept called social identity theory, uh, which which then leads to this identity fusion. But we become part of what we consider an in-group, so that the group yeah. that contains us is an in-group, and by virtue of that, 
other groups are outgroups. And the, yeah. the, I think the best example of this is when you join the military and all of a sudden your military, that's your in-group, and then the out-group becomes civilians yeah. and you start to sort of reinforce your own identity uh, you can tend to diminish outgroups, and it's it's naive and it's ignorant, but it helps bolster in-group identity by saying, you know, civilians wouldn't know about this. They're never on time. You know, they're always running late. They've got no discipline. <laughs> they, they probably you know, are, but anyway. Of, yeah, well, no, I mean, it's 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 an, it's a, a massively ignorant and yeah. toxic. In effect, it's a toxic thing that happens in in military. I, I saw it happen, and I. I uh, fell into that trap myself, and 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 then you, you go further down rabbit holes. So within the military, I was army. So of course that was the superior service over air force. <laughs> and I keep and, hearing that, but I think yeah. the, air force, the air force do seem to get the better conditions. So I, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? With uh, when you when you take a, a step back and have a look at the bigger picture here, you, without the air force. We weren't going overseas, you know. I mean, you you, you need all of these elements yeah. of an organisation for it to work. And and you know, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked a little here, and I'll do that a lot. I apologise, <laughs> Matt. But I, that that analogy of it, the tip of the spear used to always pain me when it was used uh, to describe units like special operations, and you know, the tip of the spear, yeah. and, and and they're held in high esteem. And and I think it's it's. It is accurate in, in the fact that that's often who project forward and interface with the enemy. You know, the, the analogy holds true in that regard. But but I like to look at it from the perspective of the the tip of the spear is great. Yeah, sure. But without the rest of the spearhead, without the spear, without mm. the person holding the spear that has the training to operate the spear, the spear tip is useless. Yep. And when yep. you look at that in relation to the, the Australian Defence Force in this instance or the, the bigger organization that was was operating in places like Afghanistan sure you've got your special operations task group and and that's that's a very useful uh, organization no question but without everything that supports that it, it simply cannot do mm. what it does and, and so you know this idea that that once you get in the army the other services are the lesser services once you get into special operations then all of a sudden that's your in group and then the out group starts to become the the broader army if yeah, you let right. it yeah, and, okay. and then you can keep going down that rabbit hole and and the while that can be used as a tool to bolster morale and esprit de corps and that that sense of your own importance and the importance of your organization it subconsciously creates divides between you and everyone else and mm. and this is is sort of fast forwarding to the point where you need to leave an organization be that as i did just discharging from the army or uh, worst case scenario in my opinion if you've suffered a, a physical or a psychological injury or circumstances dictate that you are removed from that organization uh, not on your own volition, so not on your own terms, which is, in my opinion, the worst case scenario, it makes that transition back into these other groups uh, near impossible. And so, mm. I mean, I, I'd spent 15 odd years looking down my nose at civilians as this, you know, in my mind, in my naive and ignorant uh, mind at the time as this lesser species mm. and then all of a sudden I discharge and guess what I am a civilian again <laughs> and so you know I mean it's we need to be aware of this and use that that group identity and that that social identity and, and we need to be 
certainly using it for its positive effect of building yep. esprit de corps within groups and, and helping us feel like uh, we're doing something meaningful and purposeful and that our group is a great group. But we got to watch out for the, the, the cheap trick of, of doing that by diminishing the outgroups. It's, mm. it's uh, toxic and it's counterproductive. But so, you know, there's all this, this change to the identity. There's this social identity theory that, that in-group, out-group, as, as you go along these, these careers and you become bonded with the people around you, close to you, your tribe, Yep. who can provide a great amount of support, you, you start. You can start to drift more and more from the broader population. And I, I do consider there to be a significant divide. And this is a, this is a tough one to, to discuss without sounding elitist or arrogant. Mm. And I don't mean that in any way, shape or form when I say that I believe there is a, a divide between first responder and military and the broader population. And I think that divide exists mostly around exposure to unique stresses and particularly critical incidents. Mm. So these these exposures to incidents that are so far outside the range and realm of normal human experience that things like in in I was some ask you about that. that yeah because the yeah. I was wondering whether there is a link or a, I suppose a, a strengthening of that concept that you've just talked about because of the role that they've had so uh, a la, I guess people in other specialty areas and uh, different types of roles that aren't normalizing what I would call the abnormal is that part do you think that's part of the actual issue and and why it's so compoundingly difficult to manage on the way out of these type of roles unquestionably yeah unquestionably and I think it comes certainly my personal experience in talking with a, a bunch of others negotiating that transition piece one of the the fundamental stresses of transitioning out and trying to reintegrate with uh, I use the term civilians because I come from a military yeah. background but but the broader population outside of military and first responder organizations is this profound feeling of being not being understood and this feeling of of loneliness and mm. not not that you're not surrounded by people but that feeling that you just can't connect with these mm. these people uh, as you could with the people who had shared experiences with you, who could empathise with some of your exposures on a real visceral level. So mm. when when you, even if someone wasn't in the same experience as as you, so the same exact situation, like a police officer could talk to another police officer from a different you know jurisdiction, different state, different country, and they could have a visceral bond over the mm. unique stressors of being a police officer. Mm. And, and that's powerful. That's really powerful. And they can't share that with anyone outside of, of policing, really. Mm. But, you know, to bring this back to that, that risk of sounding elitist in a military or a first response organisation. I, I recently had the opportunity to do a resilience session with a group of teachers and the exact same holds true. Like I cannot have a visceral sense of empathy for the stress of trying to teach a, a group of primary school oh. students. I just can't because I haven't I couldn't had think that of anything experience. more frightening, <laughs> to be honest Oh, with mate, you and me, yeah, put, put me in a gunfight or <laughs> a resuscitation situation any oh, day of the man. week and School kids. But we, we can tend to, this is where, and, and, you know, I use this exact 
statement in the discussion that I had with them from the outside. You could be you could be tempted to look at teachers and say, "What are you whinging about? You knock yeah. off at three o'clock every day, and you get you get a gazillion weeks of." bloody holidays every year. And, and that's the naive, ignorant, external view yeah. of, of this this group of people who's under an, an immense amount of stress trying to, to manage a bunch of kids. They're, they're now under the microscope of things like NAPLAN, these standardised uh, national uh, tests of, of their kids' performance, mm. which is then used as a proxy for their performance <laughs> in in the teaching role. So I mean, there's it's a huge pressure cooker, and that's just one example. And every occupation is going to have these unique stressors that, unless you're in it, you cannot truly understand. So yeah. it's not this isn't just something that's owned by military and first responder. Mm. But coming back to what I said earlier. Uh, stress is stress and, and we're all under stress. We all have unique stressors that will only be understood by others who are undergoing that same stress. But I do believe that there is an amplification of that stress in roles where you're exposed to these abnormal mm. exposures, these dead bodies, this this yeah. risk of, of physical violence, this constant uh, you know, verbal assaults that, that prison guards get, correctional officers that police officers get that ambos often often get even though they're not being uh, physically abused mm. in in that setting although they all those roles are, are, are very much high rates of, of being physically assaulted just that verbal threat and that that potential it's threat potential, of physical think, abuse yeah, yeah yeah absolutely and and we know that that ramps up chronic stress responses that that serve to yeah. to burn people out uh, physically I'd love to talk a little bit about that chronic exposure piece because I was listening yet again, going back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast, I was listening to one with Dr. Richard Mag Magtengard. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. Megasaurus is how I remember it. I can't remember because <laughs> I know they were joking about his name, but um, he, he's... <laughs> I believe that's pronounced. Mantengard, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. So he's sort of one hour on that podcast, uh, I guess summarized the last 18 months of my life of all of these things that I've tried to learn and, you know, even down to treatments and, and the effectiveness of them and why they're recommended and not recommended. And But one of the things that he does talk about, and he, he actually addresses this issue really well because there's always this, in my experience, is that there's always this really cautiously awkward comparison that at times has to be made between police and emergency service work and military work. He really tactfully uh, and, and really well uh, explains it really well but he also draws that conclusion that I think a lot of us think is you know military people go on a deployment for nine months or whatever and not yeah absolutely crazy exposure uh, a crazy sort of life while they're there but then they get to come home and, and it's in a, generally speaking in another country whereas the first yeah. responder world is every day it's constant and uh, he, he one of the things that's always troubled me uh or it does now is is what he points out is that often it's in your own community. So, you know, yeah. I think he uses an example of you know the the police officer's got a young child and the young child wants to go to this park, but you know just the day before there was a horrific event there, yet he can't deny the child's want to go down to that swing. So, um, you know that constant re -ex re exposure, I guess, to those sort of things is is something that is a bit unique with the emergency services world. But yeah, that's sort of 
I guess that just li- living in that environment and being constantly in that sort of operating mode, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, it's sort of, I, I guess that's why I was wondering the linkages between that and, you know, I, I, I guess identifying that, but then why is that making this so hard to get out? And and you were talking about the network that is given to you when you're when you're part of these communities. So the military, the, when you join, you've automatically got a social group. Same in the police, yeah. same in the fire brigade. You've, you've got these pre-made social groups that you almost have to be part of. And then, and one thing I did notice too is that as the pressure came down on me, I started to withdraw from everything and a lot of those social engagements became really hard to do. So you remove that and then you stop doing lots of other things that are part of what would be good, good, healthy, uh, sort of, I suppose, personal maintenance. But then, yeah, you, you, those things get chipped away and chipped away and taken away by, by yourself generally because you don't know what's going on. But yeah, yeah and then... And then, then sometimes, yeah, as you said, like that choice is is made for you that you now need to not be part of that organisation that you've been part of your entire life, uh, working life, and it's gone. So, yeah, it's sort of it, it is a it's a real challenge for people to try and grapple with that identity loss. And and you know, in the police, there's that there's a horrible saying that there's nothing more X than an X, and they almost yeah. they, they make that part of the culture and then you sort of know that that's you when you know your day's coming and it's yeah, it's pretty pretty hard and uh yeah and, and it is hard because once you leave a lot of people still refer to you as you you know that this is Matt the ex copper but you're not allowed to be part of that club anymore so they're still reminding you of the fact that you're an ex copper but they won't you know it's really really tricky yeah Mate, you've, there's so many points that you've just alluded to, but I want to back right up to to Rich, who you who you mentioned, wonderful human being. I've had the privilege of of spending a bit of time with him, and and he is just the right guy to be in those roles to to be able to psychiatrically support people who need that support. And he's he's doing some great things. He, he's a he's a hell of a, a good guy. Uh, as an yeah. individual and as a clinician, and and he he's doing some great work there, and and those the and, and I mean just to latch onto that last point, and then I'll, I'll loop back again, but but that comes back to that that social identity theory and in groups and out groups, and while you're while you're a part of that group, you, you're in, but the second you discharge, you become a part of the out group, but your identity mm-hmm. is still one of being in that in group, and yeah. and I, I use the the analogy. Often when I'm when I'm talking about this, that it's it's often like a you know a marriage breakup or a long term relationship breakup, and when you leave these units or these organisations or these roles, then you you're so used to being that person and being around those other person and and people and and your tribe and identifying as that role, and then when you leave, you're a bit lost and and like you say, it's still a part of your your identity. That's kind of like your your ex husband or your ex wife is mm-hmm. is the job and and it's terribly difficult and everyone negotiates it differently as to how much contact you have with that former tribe and how productive that is. And it's like that relationship breakup. You can stay in touch with your ex and that can can be good to sort of keep some of those ties or it can kind of keep you in that identity and stop you from moving on. And once again, to play out that analogy, if you've, if you've had a, a breakup of a long-term relationship and then you're trying to build a new relationship, 
it's terribly hard to do that if you're constantly in touch with your ex. It's going mm-hmm. to affect your ability to engage fully. And so there is no right or wrong answer, but there was a period of time for me when I was negotiating my transition where it helped me to to not sever my ties, but just not keep as in close touch with with those from my previous military right. life whilst I tried to re-establish an identity as a civilian and start to rebuild some sense of, of identity, of purpose, of self-esteem, of professional satisfaction as a civilian. I, I was finding it hard to do that when I was staying closely engaged with people from the military because that was just fueling these thoughts of, gee, I wish I was back there. And mm-hmm. so it's it's... It's, there's no perfect answer there, but I think it's worth considering how much for people who have transitioned, how much contact you're having with people from your former role and whether that serves you well or not. And yeah, what, what I yeah. found worked for me was to minimise that contact for a period of time while I re-established myself in a new role and started to, to kind of build a new civilian identity and a sense of purpose, self-worth and, and all of that good stuff. And, and then once I was in a a good place with a, a fairly strong civilian identity as a as a, in that instance a, a doctor working in an emergency department by the time I really kind of felt my feet as a as a civilian again I found it much easier to then re-engage with my army mates from times gone by without having that sensation of oh gee I wish I was back there and and so the Coming back to though a point that you you spoke about when you were talking about Rich and, and his discussion surrounding the military deployments versus first responders, yeah, I think that's a that's a good one as well, and that's something that interests me. There's a there's a real sense of uh, respect, and I think uh, public sympathy for veterans, particularly military veterans who, who have served in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and this, this understanding that they may have some psychological trauma from their exposures, this acceptance that that's a, a stressful thing to do. And, and that's fantastic. And I think veterans have got this, this great platform, which is, which is, you know, wonderful. And I, I'm, I feel privileged to, have that that platform myself as, as a veteran, but it does bother me that we're not recognising the the same thing for our police officers, our ambulance officers, our correctional officers. They often get left mm. out of this discussion yeah, altogether. Yeah, they're, they're often out of the narrative, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, wow. And the only time they pop up is, and, and I, I had the opportunity to work in the prison system. I worked as a, a medical director for the South Australian Prison Health Service. I did that job for, right. for about three and a half years. And it gave me this amazing insight into the correctional world that I realised most people don't ever get yeah, because prisons is something that happens behind barbed wire, <laughs> but, you know, as, you know, as it needs to, to happen. And, and we don't get this insight. And I, yeah. I, I think most people have this ignorant, simplistic impression of what a prisoner is, you know, mm. lock them up, throw the key away. We don't want them in society around our kids or, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff, which, which is ridiculous because the average prisoner doesn't spend that long in prison. They're coming in and out. Yeah. Where, where, and the average prisoner, of course, is a human being like you or I. And, and more often than not, they've just had some really unfortunate life circumstance that's pushed them on a trajectory that's ended up in prison. They're they're generally good people that have had a a horrible 
start to life and their trajectory has ended up yeah. in, in jail. But the the stress of a correctional officer day in, day out, I- interacting with that community and doing their best to try and look after that community and, and rehabilitate that community is horribly stressful role mm-hmm. under the constant verbal abuse that they get in those uh, facilities, the constant threat of, of physical violence that exists in that, those communities. And yet the general population doesn't give them any consideration, let alone respect, until something goes wrong in a prison, a death yeah. in custody, and then there's there's trial by uh, media and everyone has this, this negative kind of view of it. And so, yeah, I think they get left out of this discussion. We need to do better. But yeah. Coming back to the the military versus these first response organisations or emergency department staff, mental health staff, all these roles that are so stressful and they're not done, like you said, in a faraway country for a block of six months where you can go away, do your thing, switch on for that period do what you got to do, but then come home and unplug from it. They're done in our communities, like you say, and they're done day in, day out, month in, month out, for decades sometimes, and it's the the same stress but amplified exponentially with a a fraction of the the public recognition of the stress of the role that that a veteran gets. And so I think there's a real real opportunity there to, to raise awareness for our police officers, ambulance officers, correctional officers, uh, fireys and, and volunteer fireys is yeah, another area right. that I, I look at and I think, wow, that's that's unbelievable. And there's tens of thousands of them around Australia who have day jobs, who have lives and who give up their time for free to turn up in the middle of the night to try and pull a mangled person out of a, yeah. a car crash. And then they go back to bed, get two hours of sleep and go to work as an accountant the next day with That's right. people who don't understand them. I mean, it's just yeah, it sort of mind-boggling. I've, yeah. I've worked with them for many years, obviously, in my careers and, and um, yeah. you know, and, and being a part-time firefighter at the same time I was a full-time police rescue operator. And, you know, yeah. it's quite amazing to see the mix of people in those volunteer organisations yeah. and, and how like, some amazing people in there, amazingly talented people, but what they oh, give... Yeah what they give to their communities for absolutely nothing is, you know, oh, man. And, but as you said, like they're the, the the baker or the person that works downtown in the shop and then all of a sudden they yeah. go into these fatalities with in, invariably yeah. half the time local people and then, yes. yeah, two hours later they're back at work. That's right. And, and the other thing that I think amplifies those exposures is the fact that their training is fairly minimalistic. Mm. They're, not, they're not having that same training or that stress inoculation that that we were lucky enough to have in a a military environment and particularly in the special operations environment where there was a huge budget and a huge emphasis and time allocation to train, 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 train so that when you do find yourself in these high consequence environments, Mm. you actually feel ready to to deal with it. Or well, that was my experience anyway. And then that massively diminishes the stress of the situation. But you have these selfless people who volunteer their time to be a, uh, a fiery and they, they get that, that, that certainly they get a, a good grounding to be able to be functional. But in my opinion, it's nowhere near enough to, to stress inoculate them against the, exp- the, the magnitude of the exposures yeah. that they have. And so, and then I fear that 
within first response communities, and once again, coming back to the toxic nature of that, that social identity theory and the, the in-groups, out-groups, the volunteer uh, groups, uh, AMBOs or FIREs, whatever it may be, can, can sometimes, once again, ignorantly be perceived as a lesser uh, sort of capability. Yeah, absolutely than, than are. And yeah. so there's this pecking yeah. order. Oh, yeah. they're, they're just a volley. And, you know, that's that's a horrible is. Uh, way to look at this. And I think the lens we need to look at it through is this is a selfless person giving up their time with a, a rudimentary training in the grand scheme of things, getting exposed to these horrendous things and without the support and, and the, the resilience that comes from a community that does it full time. And, and that's that's something exceptional and, and we need to, as a community, recognise this and do what we can to to support these people probably more so than those who are doing it full-time and have yeah. the, the benefit of the other factors that bolster resilience. One of the things that's come up in the the heart to heart walk purpose is is exactly that data set piece is you know we just don't know and you know as yeah. you've pointed out you know that these people have normal jobs routinely when they're a volunteer like while they're a volunteer and you know if they like sadly if somebody's committed suicide their occupation would be listed as butcher but yeah. they probably they could have committed suicide because of their service in the in the VRA like in the volunteer rescue association or something like that so. We just don't know. Yeah, it, we need to know. We need to get better data on this to to help manage it. That's for sure. But you know, and it's funny that you you talk to that. I suppose acceptance or perception piece of veterans versus first responders, and and more broadly, like as you said, you know, emergency staff, emergency room staff, and nurses, and everything else included. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's funny. I, I go to a PTSD group that's got a quite a spectrum of military and emergency services people, and, and we've had that discussion because one of the guys there, uh, ex army, has a an assistance dog, and yep. it's one of those things that you know it's it's really beneficial, obviously, for him. But some of the other emergency services people and I have had that discussion of I think one of them would be good for me, but people yeah. will laugh at me because. You know, I, I'm not a veteran, but I've got a, a dog, and there's this. I think there's this inherent perception that, oh, you know, you're an ex you're an ex service person. You know, that's fine. But if you're an ex ex copper or an ex fiery or an ex ambo, you know, surely you don't need that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. a sad that's that's a sad reality of that. Uh, you know, that mindset I think that that is out there of that differentiation between the two the two service roles. Yeah, agreed completely. The other aspect of this discussion that that bothers me is the people who might be in those volunteer roles or who might have been in a, a military element that potentially didn't go overseas or was overseas in a rear echelon role. Uh, I've often found that they diminish their own or feel they need to diminish their own exposures because they are comparing them to the exposures of others right. and in in their minds and and it can work both ways you can get these combat veterans who feel entitled to certain uh, i guess recognition and and maybe 
feel that others shouldn't be entitled to the same recognition by virtue of the fact that the absolute situation they found themselves in was different and in their mind maybe a, a more a, a sort of a, a, a situation that is more deserving of the, the the diagnosis or the benefits or whatever else. And we need to break that down. We, there, yeah. It's a mugs game to try and compare your individual exposure to stress and your reaction to stress to someone else's because there's so many factors that that play into that and I, I was I was talking just the other day with someone about this topic and and we were talking about a a particular uh, award of a, a medal for gallantry that was given to an infantry soldier and in this setting we, it, it had happened when when I was overseas and I remember some of our guys in the special operations task group reading the citation and, and basically saying, why are they giving an MG for that? You know, this is what right. we do three times a week as as Special Operations Task Group. And they're and they falling into that same trap of thinking that the absolute scenario is what should determine the, the outcome or, in this instance, the allocation of a medal. But they're failing to realise that, yeah, maybe it is it is more common for these blokes to end up in the scenario that, that uh, was awarded a medal. But they were doing a different role they were given a whole bunch more training they were very specifically you know stress inoculated against yeah, that right. situation to be able to function and and the the scenario that this infantry soldier found himself in was on a routine patrol where they it wasn't a a, a direct action sort of mission where they'd gone out expecting to get in a fight it was a routine patrol they'd been ambushed and then his response was under those circumstances in my opinion hugely worthy of, of an MG. This right. guy did an exceptional job contextually because and, and so you can't compare apples and apples. It's yeah. not about looking at at the absolute stress or and sort of thinking, well, what why are you struggling, mate? I had this happen and I'm doing okay, or I had this happen and therefore I should be entitled to to this uh, sort of range of yeah. diagnosis and benefits. You only had that, therefore you don't. It just doesn't work that way. It's, yeah. it's it's all about focusing on the individual. And once you can break that down and realise that that the stress of of a, a certain situation that may not affect you because you've been stress inoculated, trained against it, you are prepared for it, whatever else, that same absolute stress can be catastrophic for someone who hasn't had that same yeah. training or or isn't in in a position where they were expecting it anticipating it and trying to respond to it and once you can get your head around that fact then hopefully people can kind of better relate to one another in terms of their individual responses to the threat mm. and and how they must have felt so if someone has had a scenario where they've and 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 I had this uh, once again another great uh, example of this was uh, I'd done a presentation to a group and and spoken to some of my experiences overseas and a bloke came up to me afterwards and and opened up with the line look it's nothing compared to you know what you've had happen however I had this happen and and the story was he'd had a knife pulled on him he was he was working. Uh, in a um, in a customer service role, and someone held up the the place he was working in, and and stuck a knife to his throat, wow. and he he had, so he was diminishing it. He was like, you know, I wasn't in a gunfight. No one was shooting at me. And I'm like, hang on, back up a sec, mate. No, this is exactly the same as as any experience that I've had. Maybe worse. This was a very real, tangible threat to your life that you were unprepared for. You couldn't have seen this coming, and you were untrained to 
to have any response to that. Yeah. And so that is, you know, life flashing before your eyes type thing. And and so the absolute stressor is is a knife compared to maybe gunfighting. And if you if you're naive enough to look at that and say, well, it wasn't you weren't getting shot at, yeah, mate. Yeah. What are you complaining about? You're missing the point. It's all about the stress versus the resilience to that particular stress that the individual has at that time resulting in a stress event. And so we, we need to we need to not fall into that trap of, of looking at the absolutes and then somehow trying to to compare, compare it doesn't yeah. work. And actually on the on the flip side of that, I think what you touched on there too was the that sort of imposter syndrome meshed up with a bit of guilt of feeling the way they're feeling because of an event that they think is not worthy for that poor person going through you know undoubtedly bloody horrors you know feeling all of that and and you know that's 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 another mishmash on on top of uh you know like throughout what you've just explained uh that they're trying to deal with as well as the trauma oh for sure and and to extend that a step further, we start to get into the range of vicarious trauma, which is a very real thing. And that's where you have not even been exposed to a traumatic event, but you are aware of it. You've even you've either heard about it, you've read about it, someone's told you about it. You become aware of this uh, traumatic event, and then you start to formulate a stress response and potentially symptoms that are that are indistinguishable from post-traumatic stress and people who find themselves in that situation that can be hugely confronting because in in your uh, logical mental narrative you're thinking well what why is this bothering me i wasn't even there you know this is this shouldn't be bothering me and yet it is and that creates this real what's called cognitive dissonance this this sort of looking at how you're reacting and feeling things like guilt and and not understanding why that's happening, and then that can that can also be be highly misunderstood. In once again, in that that bigger context of someone who who was there having some issues, someone who wasn't there but learnt about it having similar issues, and yeah. it's like, well, what are you talking about, mate? You weren't even there, and or the individual can think, why am I? Why is this affecting me? Yeah, I wasn't absolutely. even there, and I, I was doing some stuff with a police group just earlier this week, and I used the example of that. Um, that tragic scenario late last year in Queensland mm. where two police officers lost their lives and and sort of just was discussing the psychological effects of that and, and the, the group recognised, yeah, that, that really affected them and just exploring that, just, well, why is that? Why did you have an emotional response to that? You weren't there. Mm. like, And, and that's, that, that's that ignorant perspective. You weren't there, it shouldn't affect you. But, hey, hang on a sec, these, these are a room full of coppers even though they may not have known those two police officers, they can feel that viscerally they can they can empathise with that because they they're out doing the same job. They they would have you know been approaching similar sort of houses a uh, hundred times before, and they can put themselves in that person's shoes, and that then allows them to drive a, a stress reaction to those events that they were, you know, two time zones away mm, from. Mm. And so that secondary traumatic stress or vicarious trauma is another very real thing that we we need to treat as seriously as as we would someone who was exposed directly. Is there any uh, link to, you talk a lot about rumination and the, I suppose, the, the detrimental outcomes of doing that both on your own and in a group. Is there any, mm. uh, like, association 
between that getting out of control and some of those other factors of not feeling validated in your own headspace? Is there is that sort of linked together? Do, do they sort of co-relate at all? Or yeah, look, there's there's definite links between rumination and particularly negative rumination or maladaptive rumination, just kind of spinning on negative thought loops and revisiting negative uh, experiences. There's definite links between that and anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. which can absolutely then fuel everything that, that you were just mentioning. And it's that's a, another thing. And, and you mentioned just earlier that uh, the, the blog article that I'd put out recently, we talk about it in Resilient Shield. And mm-hmm. it is a, another one to be aware of in for all of us, but particularly in first responder organisations, this thing called maladaptive co-rumination, which is... You know, we love to have big wanky terms in, in medicine and psychology <laughs> and psychiatry. It makes us feel important. But basically what, what maladaptive co-rumination is, is when you are getting together with other people who understand you, so members of your tribe, if you like, who can empathise with what you're experiencing or sometimes people who have have been in the same situation if it was a, a bad situation or who are under the same pressures at work, say it might be a resource limitation or there might be certain things that that are just, uh, you know, bothering you in the workplace. And you get together with other people who you feel understood around, who feel your pain and can empathise and and you go over these things. Yeah. And it's, it's a, a problem because you feel like you're doing something good you feel understood, you feel heard, you feel supported, but and you'll walk away from it probably feeling better. Like, yeah, that was a good yeah. session. I had a vent, they understood me, they feel my pain, we're in this together. And so it can it can create that that social bond between you and that other person, and that's got strength to yep. it. But what you don't realize you're doing is you are reinforcing negative neural pathways in your brain about these events or circumstances that serve to fuel a chronic stress response. It's either just fueling anxiety, it's fueling frustration, resentment, vengeance, which then has the effect of of causing your body to release more of its chronic stress hormone, cortisol, which has the effect of just slightly bumping up your heart rate, your blood pressure, all these sort of things and driving this chronic stress response that we know happens in these high-stress, high-consequence organisations that we know is linked with higher rates of mental and physical health consequences. So it's 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 a thing to be aware of. And and the 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 way out of it, so rumination in itself, revisiting things and going over them and over them is not necessarily bad. It's it's how you go about it. And the maladaptive form of rumination, either by yourself or with others, that co-rumination, is when you're focused on the, the event or the outcome, you know, what happened, the negatives of it, if you focus in on that and go over and over and that, that's bad. Mm. If you use that same forum or interaction to go over the event with a view to working out how you might be able to do it better next time if it was a negative outcome, you know, that's that's a positive form of rumination or going over the the event that might be a current thing, but focused on potential solutions to the problem. Mm. You know, yeah, this sucks. You know, we're overworked, underpaid, blah, 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 blah. What can we be doing to make our situation better? 
is is a, a question that could steer you in the direction of spitballing and a more adaptive rumination type process. Yeah, right. But we tend to gravitate towards the negative, the maladaptive, just pissing and moaning about the bad thing that happened. Or I, I don't mean that flippantly, but revisiting the bad thing that happened over and over without yep. any attempt to uh, turn it into a positive, look at potential solutions, look at the, the bright side of what happened. It's just reinforcing these negative events and, and that's a, a nasty thing. But it feels good because you feel understood and it builds a, a bond between that other person. So, yeah, maladaptive co-rumination is, uh, you know, when I read your article, I just went, wow, that explains the culture and the carry-on at a lot of police stations and, and fire stations that I've been at. And I'm not too sure why, you know, I think sometimes you get these really tough events that I guess bond people together in some ways when you've, when you've done arduous stuff together. I think it makes it quite a tight team, but yeah, the need or the practice of focusing on the what went wrongs or what, uh, and not constructively, it's, as you said, you know, like you can turn that into an AAR sort of outcome where you're, where you're talking about, you know, okay, what happened? What can we do better? But, um, you know, a lot of the time it's, it's purely focused on having a whinge and, and complaining about things that have gone wrong or the people or the what, the whatever, um, associated with that event. And I, yeah, I'm completely with you on how, uh, I guess, problematic that is but also how troubling it can be and I, I I just wanted to mention that link that you've made in there to compounding other background issues that someone might have in relation to that so i.e increased anxieties and and uh you know those other attributes that are effectively leading up to or if not part of PTSD so yeah it's not a it's not a good it's not a good loop to get stuck in it's certainly not a good cultural practice yeah, look, you're exactly right, and I don't think this is unique to first response organisations. This is any workplace. The human mm. tendency is to want to get together and, and feel heard and be heard and 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 discuss things that that are, are happening. But we we suffer as humans from a thing called negativity bias, which means we overvalue the negative more than we would neutral or positive. So that tends we, we're we're biased to go straight to the negative and then we can jump down that rabbit hole and fall into that that trap yeah. and and so i think sorry I'm, I'm conscious of your time as well matt i know i know i can i can ramble oh, no, when uh, when when i get talking <laughs> but but a point i'd love to make just before we wind up is there is the way you can tap into different social support networks to optimize your ability to manage stress and also to process critical incidents or traumas in my opinion and I've thought deeply on this for uh, for many years now and and I think there is well I don't think there's definitely a real strength in being heard by people who can empathize with you and and so this group of what I, I call empathizers which are often your workmates particularly in in military first responder organizations people who were either in the event with you or are in the organization under the pressures that you're under 
tap into them for that empathy and that and that ability to to feel each other's stress and pain, but try not to have it too focused on the the negatives. Try and use that as a forum to uh, look at, at well, what is the solution here? Or yeah, that went wrong. How can we do it better next time? That's a way of turning rumination more positive and starting to to be a, a bit of a better outcome for that rumination than just spinning on the negative loops so your empathizers are the people who uh can understand you who can who can viscerally feel your stress or your trauma and that's powerful what can often happen though in the workplace is you need to keep up a bit of a professional's facade you need to play Mm. a role at the workplace and in first response communities police military uh you know corrections that that's often a fairly uh, hyper-masculine, and I don't mean that as a, a kind of a, any relationship to your actual gender. I mean that as that they are the roles. They're, they're typically culturally quite stoic. You know, you keep up that facade of, of bravado and, and all that kind of stuff. And that can that can be a bit of a barrier to deep, vulnerable interpersonal connection. So that's where I see having relationships and intimate relationships uh, with people outside of your work community, that's where you can tap into that support. And so hopefully people have got friends and family outside of their workplace who won't understand them. That's an important thing to understand. They, they will not get the stress, no matter how much you try and tell them about what happened or how terrible something is. They won't be able to empathise. That's not their fault. Don't hold them accountable for that. Understand that they can't understand. It's not that they don't want to. It's just that they can't. Just like we can't empathise with their stressors of being a teacher with a room full of primary school kids. You know, I can't get that because I haven't lived that, but I appreciate it's stressful. But hopefully uh, people have got some, some social support outside the workplace where they can drop all that facade and that need to keep up that bravado and, and they can be vulnerable and they can be authentic. They can be themselves and, and just connect on that level with those people but knowing that that person's not going to be able to truly understand what they're feeling about the stress in the role. So you've got your people at work who can empathise, but you might have to keep up a bit of a facade. People outside of work who you can drop the facade, be yourself. And for me, that's my my wife, Christy, uh, who's who has was was absolutely fundamental to me getting myself back on track and and the only person who's seen me cry in the last 20 years because I, I couldn't I didn't feel I could sort of cry on the shoulder of my workmates in the army but I could absolutely yeah, come absolutely. home and, and cry on her shoulder and I did and and so I could connect with her for that sort of support and then you've got the professionals your psychologists mental health workers your doctors these sort of people you 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 rich uh, Mantegards that you mentioned earlier, these are the people who have got the professional tools to be able to, to help you uh, negotiate and process information, mitigate stress and manage stress. And they often won't be able to empathise viscerally with you. They may not have done the job you've done, had the exposures that you've had. You may not know them. You probably won't know them well enough to truly be vulnerable and drop your guard and, and have that sort of mm. relationship. But you can tap into them for for this objective uh, interpretation of what's happened to create some perspective around what's happened and to gain the tools that can help you break out of those maladaptive ruminative loops and start processing things and moving forward. And so if you use those three groups well, 
if you tap into those workmates for what they can support you for, the friends and family outside of work for what they can support you for, and the professionals for the tools that they have, in my opinion, that's the best way to mitigate the stress of these uh, highly stressful roles and also to process mm. the, the cumulative trauma of these critical incidents as you go along. Yeah, and and de- definitely you've got a better chance of either you or someone else picking up those cracks before they become canyons, I think, too. Yeah, unquestionably. You know, without those other sets of eyes looking at you. You're absolutely right. And, and when, you, when you're in that that uh, situation yourself, you, you often lose insight into the effect of the stress. You, you don't know that it's accumulating. You don't see mm. the early warning signs. And it can be a bit of a, a slow drift towards – a, a state of, of, of mental health where you become aware. That's when you, you realise, well, hang on a sec, I've got some work mm. to do here. And it's only then often that people look back and, and think, well, you know, what, this kind of makes sense. I've been a copper for 20 years. I've, I've seen, you know, 250 dead bodies a year in that 20 years, you know, whatever it may be. And it starts to make sense. Hang on, yeah, of course I'm struggling a little bit here. That, that checks mm. out. But when you're in, in that bubble, you don't know it's happening, but exactly as you said, someone from outside that bubble will often see those chinks appearing in the armor well before you become aware of them. And if you're, if you have the the humility and the vulnerability to listen to those opinions of others and not just do the the the, the tempting thing to do what I certainly did when they might have been pointed out to me and just shut it down, sort of thinking you wouldn't understand. I'm fine. I'm tough. I'm stoic. And if you, if you have that yeah. true communication and you, you're willing to listen and be vulnerable, then that's that's powerful information because that can allow you to, to change tack and put some strategies in place ahead of a, a more catastrophic stress event. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, you do, I think in a lot of these roles too, you get into that, you get to that point where you're literally actively trying to mask or disguise what you might know is going yeah. on and doing whatever you can do to stay on that truck or to not get moved into a different role or something like that. So it can be a challenge. Yeah, and, that's and, and sure. that's a threat to the identity. It's it's a fear of being sidelined mm. from the job that you love and you identify as and that all your mates are doing. It's There can be still, of course, that unfortunate stigma surrounding mental health in yeah. a lot of these organisations and cultures that we need to break down. And that all just perpetuates this reluctance to uh, admit to any issues, even when you see them coming, or put your hand up for help. And so we tend to mask it with all these maladaptive coping strategies. Alcohol is a great one to mm-hmm. just kind of dumb the thoughts down. And, and uh, obviously, you know, that can spiral pretty negatively pretty quickly. But mm-hmm. also just things like distraction, keeping super busy, keeping moving forward. So you, you try and stop yourself from from slowing down and processing and thinking and revisiting stuff and and uh, you know all these all these avoidance techniques like you mentioned before you know the 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 park where a, a copper may have have known an, an event occurred and so they don't take their kid to that park because it will be a trigger and and if you're a copper long enough you're going to have so many mm. spots around your local yeah, you run out of parks <laughs> yeah you run out of yeah. parks yeah exactly you're driving yeah. driving three and a half hours <laughs> to get to a set of swings for your kid to have a play. So, I mean, these these are all coping mechanisms, and they work, but they're maladaptive ones. And so you need to you need to build a a set of tools which are adaptive coping strategies to to do that better. It's not about 
not using the maladaptive ones. That's, that's a, I think, a key thing, and there's some good studies around this. So it's not about saying, well, don't drink anything and, and, you know, all of this sort of stuff, but start raising your awareness of your coping strategies when you're using them, why you're using them. That, that's the first step. So if you, if, you, if you feel like having a few drinks, you know, absolutely there's a time and place and, and I'm, I'm a, a big advocate of having a, a few drinks when the when the situation dictates it's a good way particularly culturally relevant way for first response or military to get together and and have a few drinks and debrief but it's important that that's not your only coping mechanism you need some adaptive ones in there some some adaptive sort of conversation techniques some adaptive strategies psychologically that the, the psychs can give you to debrief some journaling, some exercise, some meditation, some cold water immersion, some saunas, whatever it may be, a bit of yoga. Just have more tools in your kit to process these things and mitigate stress than just pouring alcohol on it or thought blocking, avoiding the trigger, distracting yourself. Uh, so it's it's about that balance and then ultimately trying to steer it more towards using the adaptive coping mechanisms and when you are using maladaptive ones, being consciously aware that you're doing it, not judging yourself for it, but just saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to have a few drinks tonight, my, my brain's in overdrive, and, and, but being aware that you're doing that and it's not sustainable yeah. and it's not, not, it shouldn't be your only strategy. Yeah, for sure. And uh, quite ironically, I read your, uh, I think the day it came out, the alcohol, the how alcohol's effect yeah. on sleep article that you put out, and I went, wow, that's just explained why my watch tells me most nights that I've had a crap sleep. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so it's it's sort of data interpretation. I went, yeah, that all makes sense, you know. And, and it's funny, you know, like I've I've certainly had those conversations with clinicians, you know, over the years about that. But it, it's funny when I read it from someone like yourself and go, okay, that now makes perfect sense and I rate it because it's from, you know, it's from it's from you. And, I, and like, yeah. I, I don't know why in my mind, I just put more weight to acknowledging that that information. And it's, you know, I'd, I'd highly recommend anybody to in first responder roles or even even just out of interest to jump on to your, uh, your list of articles. They're not for everyone because there's lots of gunshot uh, management articles and things yeah. tied up in there. But, uh, you know, the... Uh, in, in there, uh, wow, there's some you, – you've put a lot of work into making really complex and really relevant articles for people like myself into a, a short, readable thing that's not going to break my uh, my newly appointed lack of concentration issue that I've got. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate that, that feedback, Matt. And I think just to hook on to one of your points there, the – and I've discussed this at great length with Ben and Tim and, and with the Resilient Shield. It's, it, it's, and I've experienced it myself. It's, it's the vector that delivers the information that's often yeah. equally as important as the information being delivered. And, and you know, to, to frame that in the context of when I have the, the, the privilege of, of talking to police groups, military groups, corrections groups, whoever they may be, it's, I'm lucky enough to to be able to have a background that is is often perceived as credible by the audience, and the the information that's in Resilient Shield, it's it, there's no there's no rocket science there, and a 
newly graduated psychologist could deliver that far more eloquently and accurately than than Ben, Tim and I can. But unfortunately, once again, it's human nature to, to look at the person in front of you delivering the information, make mm. an assessment as to whether you feel they have credibility or relevance to you. And that dictates where the, the, the weight that you put on that information that's delivered. And, and so this is where I think, once again, these communities tend to not engage their psychologists as well as they might because they you know mm. will often say for instance a, a, a military psychologist or, or a, a psychologist attached to police the people within that organization might look at, at this person and not be able to make a connection like you, you don't understand me what would you know and it's it's ignorant it's naive and it's ignorant and it, it comes back to that that using these prof- these different support networks for what they can offer and where mm. their specialty is. And they, the, in that context that I just described, the, the people who, who might have that ignorant attitude are ones that have failed to realise that this professional in front of them has got some tools that they don't have that are highly relevant to them and they're not going to get those tools from their workmates, they're not going to get those tools from their friends and family outside of work and they need to... Uh, let go of the fact that the psychologist, you know, they don't understand me. What would they know? They're 22 years old. I'm a 55-year-old cop that's seen it all. Yeah. They haven't had my experiences. Yeah, no, they, they haven't. Absolutely. There's there's no tiptoeing around that. But that's that's not a reason not to listen to this person because this person has got a skill yeah, set right. that in your 55 years as a cop or 30 years as a cop, you haven't acquired and and it's a useful skill set so <laughs> I, I think the sadly though the, the the vector of delivery is important and people do put put um, credibility on that and it's I, I guess it's just a, mm. a privileged position that Ben Tim and I have where we've we've had some experiences that then allow us to get people's attention to hopefully deliver information that we hope will then be positively reinforced. So if people then accept that, like you, you just said, the, the sleep piece, and then it gets reinforced by a, a psychologist or a, a whoever it may be, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, that's that reinforces what I already accept to be true. So, yeah, look, what, you, what you've just said is, you know, jumping around in my mind at the moment is, and, and back how I used to think is it's probably like that in-group, out-group type of association in my brain anyway about who if that person's from your in-group or definitely associated with or accepted by your in-group then you're going to take that information on board a lot more readily I think than if it's someone from an out-group or a or an unknown entity for sure yeah Yeah. unquestionably yeah look hey uh Thank you so much for your time today. You know, what you've talked about today, I know hits a chord with lots of our listeners and certainly everybody on our walk because of the, the reason they're doing the walk. They're, they're certainly um, dealing with these, these issues right now and or have uh, been doing so for a long time. So look, thanks very much for your explanation on a lot of these issues that we've all, we all face in some way, shape or form. And, uh, you know, look, I'm, um, I'm a bit lost for words as to how to ex- express my thanks. But look, the other thing that I, I know I mentioned before, but if people if people want to find you, the best places 
danpronk.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's hard to keep a straight face when I say that. It sounds horribly narcissistic, <laughs> but it's 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 simple and, and to the point. Yeah, yeah, dan, yeah danpronk.com yeah. uh, or Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find online. These yeah. Days. So you're you've authored two books on your own, and you've got the other the other one that you co-authored with your brother and Tim. Yep. So they're are they all available on your website as well? Yeah, there's links too. So the um, the the initial self-published uh, thing, average, average seventy kilo dickhead. You can you can get that. I love the, the name of that book. <laughs> it's tongue in cheek. The, uh, the did you do story. it as an audio book? Was that sorry? Did you do that one as an audio book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's on that's on Amazon yeah, right. in hard copy, audio, ebook, and 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 I've got I've got if anyone wants a, a signed copy, you can get them off that danpronk.com. Likewise, Resilient Shield. Uh, resilientshield.com is our website there and and there's some some resources there there's a resilient survey if people are interested in quantifying yeah, their resilience I did that a while back uh, yeah. yeah that's that's yeah. worth a look there we've got some online courses and, and you can get signed copies of the book there we've got a resilience journal that is uh, is is based on the resilient shield model for people to to get into a bit of journaling which is a really powerful thing to do but uh, so that's resilientshield.com uh, throw a bit of a a um, shout out to Ben and Tim's Unforgiving 60 podcast. Uh, I'm a bit biased, but I'm I'm a fan of that one. It talks to the same issues and the same audience that hopefully is listening in here. Uh, Yeah. So, and then The Combat Doctor was the the latest book that's come out recently. And so that's, you can get that hard copy in Australia and New Zealand bookshops or through Amazon uh, internationally in uh, audio and, and ebook. Look, thanks again, Dan. I um, yeah. Look, you've certainly helped me, and I, like I, I love the Friday first responder newsletter Excellent. feed that we get. You know, those articles in there—they're not all directly relevant to me, my like personally. But you know, so much of that information in there is, as I said before, it's it's wrapped up a whole bunch of stuff that's taken me eighteen months to learn, and I've probably forgotten half of it. And then there, there's that article that just just a great reminder from from an authority like yourself. It's uh, yeah, greatly received. So oh, that's, that's thanks again awesome. for your. Yeah, no, cheers for your time and, and congratulations on all the good stuff you're doing with the Heart to Heart Walk and, and on being out there, you know, continuing this discussion and narrative uh, for what are very important topics for a very important population. So, yeah, well done and, and thanks for having me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Cool. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google it.